Hey everyone, welcome to Just Mental Health with Steph and M, the podcast where we discuss mental health through a social justice lens. I'm Emily. And I'm Stephanie. A quick disclaimer before we get started, we are mental health professionals, but this is not to be taken as professional advice. We are also aware that our privilege may cloud our perspective on some topics, and we not only welcome, but encourage you to message us with criticism and correction. Let's get started. Our small business shout out is Pata Salada Touristic Services. So this is a tour guide that um, I uh, got a couple tours from when I was in Puerto Vallarta, Mexico. Um, His name is Pepe and he's a super cool guy. Um, I found him on Airbnb. Um, so he took my friend and me to Sayulita, which is a little town outside of Puerto Vallarta. And he also took me on a hike, um, to see some of the, the beaches outside of the like main tourist area. Um, so I highly recommend his tours. Um, so his Instagram says we are a proud family from Puerto Vallarta. 100% Pata Salada offering authentic experiences to all our visitors. Um, so Pata Salada means salty foot. Um, so like, you know, the ocean, like salt water. Um, so you can find him on Instagram, Pata Salada Touristic Service with a um, underscore between each word. Um, yeah, so... I, I personally recommend, recommend him if you, um, ever take a vacation to Puerto Vallarta and now a quick ad. All right. Welcome back. So today we have another wonderful guest, um, joining us. He's here to talk about um, various topics related to health and sports psychology um, and which is awesome. I know nothing about sports. Um, so this will be a learning experience for me, but we welcome, um, Elliot Natrani. He's a former college athlete, and he's currently working on his master's in public health at the university of Miami. Um, so he in has Florida. in Florida, right? The, <laughs> the Florida, Miami. <laughs> so thank you so much for being here today, Elliot. Yeah, thank, thanks for, for having me. What a, what, a, what a big pleasure to be here. And thanks for that lovely introduction. Yeah, you're welcome. Um, so tell us a little bit about, I mean, we know you're getting your master's um, in public health. We know you have personal experience as an athlete. What other background do you have that is relevant to what you're going to talk about today? Well, certainly. So you know, I did uh, two years of Division three college football up in North Carolina, and I just decided to take a personal detour, uh, move back home to South Florida. And during my time completing my bachelor's degree, I decided to get into mixed martial arts, where I've done a couple of grappling tournaments, as well as, you know, sparring sessions. Um, sports has really been a big passion of, of mine. Um, after I finished my undergrad, I decided to do a year of AmeriCorps service up in Louisville, Kentucky, whereas that's where I met Emily Gableman. And I did my year of service with the Muhammad Ali Center. So, you know, learning more about Muhammad Ali, not just the athlete, but the man behind the gloves, all the great things that he did, not just for the community, but for the country and for the whole world as all. So like, you know, looking really at athletes and the impact they, the mental and physical impact they have on individuals. Um, after COVID, of course, um, I decided, you know, really seek out my master's degree in public health. That's something I've always been passionate. Combining sports medicine with health communication, which were my studies at undergrad, and I'm currently uh, almost wrapping up my program at University of Miami with a concentration in community. Uh, and health prevention. Wow. Yeah. So definitely, so COVID really, uh, in that whole situation kind of inspired you and pushed you to be like, yeah, this is what public health is what I want to do. Yes. I decided that I needed a 
a career change, you know, I was furloughed and I was like, let me give, um, let me give school another try. And, you know, I've, I've really learned a lot and, you know, I've actually, I, you know, I'll be talking a little bit about the studies that I've done as they re do relate to our topic today. And I've, I've, you know, I've had a good experience. I'm very, I'm very blessed. And I, um, I'm excited to get in the full work field where if that's working for the CDC or working for the nonprofit industry, um, something to really make using the power of physical activity and sport to make a positive, uh, helpful impact on mm -hmm. individuals. Yeah, you do some really cool projects and, you know, some of the stuff you've told us, some really cool, um, the stuff that you research and the projects you're working on. Um, why don't we jump into these talking points um, inside the thinking of a young and middle-aged adult athlete during pre and post sport event. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, and this, this really goes with just my personal experience of being sports as well as you know talking to a couple of former teammates or what I observed and I will mainly be using the sports of uh, of football and combat sports and um, my thesis work has which I'll dive in a little bit later del delves with that so really of course you always have a locker room behavior of like everybody's kind of quiet they're they're in their headphones they're listening to the music like they're very focus and that's that's very common knowledge but why is that and there could be a lot of factors it, it could deal with uh the health belief model um as well as autonomous instinction motivation like listening music you know mentally preparing relaxing excluding outside stress really gets you concentrated in the game now of course you know the success of that really just depends on on if you win or lose. Uh, for people that are win, they usually are very happy. They like to celebrate. But for even in the amateur level, a loss just mentally, for some people, they just, they just can't handle it. They, I've seen people flip chairs. I've seen people yell at each other. I've seen people fight. And it just, in the end, it, it is a game. But for some people, this is their life, especially when you look at pro athletes. Like this is their income. This is what they're doing to feed their, their family, especially when you look at the lower income combat fighters. I'm not talking about like a Floyd Mayweather or, or a Conor McGregor. I'm talking about like the really small guys that are getting paid five or $10,000 a fight. Um, it, because they didn't win, they get a bigger bonus, which means this affects their income on their families. And of course, this is an example of applying the stress and coping theory. Um, how do you cope with that stress? How do you move on with knowing that you've disappointed your family? So that's, that's some very interesting stuff that, you know, I've always been intrigued about and I've researched a little bit about, and, you know, for some people, they take losses and, you know, they do a direct assault, you know, they assault the family. And this also dives in a little bit more to the ecological factors. Um, you look at the way the, the, the individual interpersonal factors. Of course, you have factors like SES status, which is the income that people were raised in, mm -hmm. um, as well as interpersonal factors, as well as like your family education status. For a good, it is fair to assume that a lot of pro athletes, especially in these two sports, they come from mid to low SES, which means their parents, especially take South Florida, a lot of first generation or immigrant families, they didn't really have a proper education or they may have not learned uh, proper etiquette or like techniques like that. And of course, a parent can mold their kids so, so much. So you end up picking up these behaviors. You don't really know how to act. You don't learn common traits. You don't learn patience. You just do a lot of yelling. You potentially in single family houses or divorced family houses, those families have separated because of violence or, or verbal abuse. And what the kid learns, they do it as an adult. And you see that with professional athletes when they lock, when they lose. Uh, there was a, a professional wrestler that was just recently released because he was a domestic violence 
And there's a lot of factors that went into that. It was the pay that the athlete was getting into. It was their personal or religious beliefs, a lot of cultural, um, cultural behavioral factors that went into it that ended up with domestic abuse. And the wife finally couldn't take it and she posted on Twitter. The wrestler did get eventually released, but not released for that reason. And that's another thing about professional sports. It's a shame that you require so much proof to release or suspend somebody. You look at the Deshaun Watson case. This guy has 22 civil lawsuits against a person, uh, against him. And yet he's wearing a suit, just got introduced to the Cleveland Browns. He's gonna be suspended only a couple of games. His life is, is not ruined. Um, so it's just, it, it's, it's fascinating stuff. And they're just, and that's one way of how, um, what goes inside the mind, like how an athlete reacts to a loss, the way that athlete behaves. So that, okay. So with that point is, are you saying that, you know, that's part of the reason or part of what is contributing to why we see so much, it seems like it's more maybe publicized with like the sport of football, American football, but we see a lot of football players getting in trouble or having allegations against them of domestic violence, intimate partner violence. Um, so, you know, I, could you kind of speak to that? Why does that, why is that so prevalent in that sport? Well, to add to that, I would say it's, it's prevalent in, a, in the majority of sports. Uh, you know, you just, of course, you know, the news loves, especially North American news, that football is the sport of America. So you see a lot more about it. But you see it in basketball as well. You see it in, in hockey. You see it in baseball. You even see it in golf. And part of it is, you know, there, there is a theory floats around that money you know, when you get this influx of money, it changes the way you behave. It makes you feel entitled. It makes you feel like you're, you're an alpha. And, you know, of course, professional athletes, to be successful, you, you have to have so much confidence that makes you act like you're the alpha. And, you know, I, I know a couple of, of people in my, in my social circle, I won't name names, but a couple of people that have that alpha mindset. Drop that, the names. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just... <laughs> no, <laughs> I mean, they're, they're good people, but like, you know. Yeah, I'm just joking. The, the stories I, I've heard, it's just, just something about money that gives you, like when you have that power hierarchy, it gives you that, that alpha status. Like you make your top dog, like nothing can put you down. It's kind of like the story of uh, that Greek story of the, of the gentleman, he flies so high, he hits the sun. And that, and that's what happens to athletes, except sport leagues aren't really, some sport leagues are just aren't doing enough. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, a certain wrestling organization kept a person that was uh, cyberbullying all this time because he's a, he's a money draw until like, you get enough responses. So it is, it's interesting and I really wish there were more public health studies or interventions that deal with how, why leagues are so easygoing with athletes that act out of control. I mean, you look at combat sports, you look at the Paul brothers, you look at Conor McGregor, you, you know, you guys start from humble beginnings, but as they climb their way up in the rankings, they start acting so entitled. They start showboating. There's no sportsmanship. And part of that is the league wants to sell a, like a UFC or a boxing organization. They want to sell the fight. And it's just such a shame because now it affects the future generations. Kids who want to be com competitive athletes, they see these big names acting the way they are and that gives them the right to act that way too. To show, but there is no more sport. There's not really a lot of sportsmanship, or a lot of communities see uh, see sportsmanship as a sign of weakness. Of course, there's a lot of psychological studies of of being nice and being patient is is deemed, in, especially in the society of men, is deemed a sign of weakness. Or certain POC communities, like 
seeking help or being courteous is, is deemed a sign of weakness. Mm-hmm. And there were just, again, it goes back to the ecological, bioecological factors of intrapersonal individual, as well as built the built environment level. Mm-hmm. Right. So- as well as this patriarchy and toxic masculinity of the culture and, and the, the American culture as a whole, not even just in their individual culture that people come from, but like you said, the alpha being the alpha, um, needing to be strong and, and tough and, um, cocky or whatever to get that sort of, um, that sort of respect not be seen as weak. Yes, absolutely. Um, now of course for, for athletes that are, that are the amateur level, it's, you know, money's not a factor except for certain occasions when you're about to enter the NFL draft or NBA draft or professional sport draft, but the psychology of handling a loss could factor in different ways. You know, I'll give you a personal example. A couple of years ago, I competed in my first grappling tournament, which is pretty much jujitsu. I lost uh, the first round and I did not take it well. I verbally, I verbally yelled when I got in my car, I drove, I was crying, you know, I didn't handle the loss because I felt like I let my gym down. I let my family down, my gym family, not my personal family. Cause for some families don't care about their, they're not really invested in their kids sport. They're invested in their kids education, which is understandable, but I needed to be alone for like a, a good day. I had to go to a family outing the next day and I was not as talkative as I usually am because I was just not mentally ready to accept the fact that I lost. There are, and there are other people that are like, they go even far beyond where uh, you take Amanda Nunez, for example, a UFC fighter. She literally fired her whole coaching staff after her first loss in over five, six years. She was a champ. She's, she's one of the pound for pound best women fighters. And after one loss, she fired her coaching staff. The psychology that is a working environment. <laughs> another, another example of a woman that really gets criticized by um, the sport fan community, as well as like the inner MMA community that I know of. Uh, I respect her as an athlete. I question her some things, but you take Ronda Rousey, for example, she's one of the most household well-known names yeah she loses for for the for her first professional fight ever she um she lost she was like pound for pound the grade she was defending the belt well she was kicking took us <laughs> she loses she gets upset by this fighter who was a former pro boxer very big betting heavy underdog and she lost she went very remote. She was like a, a hermit. She went into hiding because again, the psychology behind it, like what she couldn't take a loss. And some people just can't handle defeat because they're so alpha. They want to be on top. They're, lo- they're so afraid to lose the hierarchy of their status. Um, eventually she came back, fought two, three years later. She was so afraid And you could see it like she lost within the first minute and a half because she still had memories. It was, I mean, in a way it's like PTSD style. She still was shaken by that loss that she lost under a minute and a half to ironically, Amanda, Amanda Nunez. Mm -hmm. Um, And what did Ronda Rousey do? She, she retired from the sport. She actually went on to professional wrestling. There was a rumor floating around when she found out she was not going to be on the top of a card she threw a tantrum and was very upset. She left a, 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 a big ceremony because she was happy that she didn't get her way. Similar to like when a person in a high school sport, a person finds out they're not starting, they're going to be uh, being on the bench. It, it deals with like not accepting your, pl- your place, not being a, a team player. Uh, this goes back to stressing and coping theory. Mm-hmm. These athletes are example of people that are failing to cope and you go back to the stressor you, and you go back to the health outcome of, of, of stress, anxiety, depression, because you lost your place. You didn't, they didn't know how to cope with it. 
successfully. That's why there needs to be more interventions of combining the stress and coping theory with professional athletes. Mm -hmm. um, so that's uh, another theory that goes inside the thinking of a professional athlete. Um, There's been more um, like team psychologists or like team therapists. Is that true? And how do you feel about that? I, I haven't heard the truth behind it. I, I, you know, example is actually in a fictional show. I don't know if you guys are familiar with the show, Ted Laszlo, Ted, Ted Lasso. Mm -hmm. um, the second season, they actually do bring in a sports psychologist uh, because one of the players, uh, because he accidentally killed a dog with a soccer kick, they bring in a sports psychologist because this person wasn't able to be a full complete uh, football player. Psychologist does does her magic, the guy is healed. And so with that in mind, I am I am full support of professional sport teams bringing in a sports psychologist because obviously since you guys work in this field, seeking mental health help with mental health issues is so important. It's getting a a, a chest, you know, getting a stone off your chest. You're you're releasing your stress. You're in a safe space. You shouldn't be mocked. And you know, there are people that mock people that seek therapy, which is a shame, but therapy is clearly proven to, to help. And there are interventions out there that show that um, access to a therapist uh, boosts self-confidence and morale in, in young athletes. I probably the same for professional sport athletes, but there are interventions that look at adolescents in team sports that access to mental health resources increases um, psychological duration, especially when you have positive reinforcement compared to negative reinforcement. Um, which, you know, it's funny because that relates to uh, a mock intervention I worked on with when it comes with interacting health behavior theories with sport performance. Um, I proposed a study that dealt with the um, the social developmental theory. And it dealt with uh, 10 high school coaches in uh, South Florida to see if pro or antisocial behaviors would influence better coaching and role models on their players. This was a cross-sectional study that included a survey defining antisocial behavior and then asking questions like, do you yell at your players constantly? Or how often do you praise your players as examples? From there, the study began and I looked for mediators like interactions between coaches and players, parental influence on the practice, players' mood in the locker room before and after practice. It was then that I applied or proposed three different path types of social developmental theories. One was a social learning theory where it was just purely observing the practice as is without influencing social behaviors. Social control theory path was made to show how pro-social involvement and antisocial involvement leads to antisocial behavior from the players. Mediation factors like words of encouragement and any type of bonding were also in the pathway. Finally, differential association was used with the pro-social and antisocial rewarding being used to influence the pathway to antisocial behavior. When the study was done, social learning theory pathway had the weakest path since little was done to change the path. Differential association had some influence with giving out rewards like no suicide runs for the receivers or practice off today. But the path was deemed weak since the behavior of the coaches as well as the outlook from the players were changed despite the rewards because punishment was still a mediating factor. The social control theory was found to have the most direct path of influencing the behaviors of coaches by coaches taking the time to expand on their bonding with players and getting to really know them on an individual level increase, increase players' morale, which then increase energy at practices, which then increase the winning percentage of the teams compared to the winning percentages of the coaches that were not part of the study, uh, otherwise known as the control group. Mm -hmm. When the coaches, of course, took a post-survey, their responses were of less negative status, so less yelling, less being pressured by parents to win and more praising of players. And of course, to uh, post-duration and make sure the success is repeated of this proposed experiments, I would organize the coaches in a WhatsApp group 
with identities kept confidential remind the pro-social behaviors they learned and to motivate themselves. In addition, it was suggested to them that keeping a relationship with players who graduate from the team to continue the bonding. Most importantly, re recognizing their current player success with words of affirmation instead of just rewards that don't last as long as mentally for the players. Obviously, a sports psychologist, a team psychologist hired by a psychologist can easily implement this uh, intervention themselves. So this is an example of, of a proposed experiment that a sports psychologists can do their team to see better, to see better behaviors from not only players, but also better behavior from the coaches, since these are the leaders mm -hmm. of the team. Yeah. So going, yeah. So going back on, you know, and, and what we know with therapy um, is that encouragement, that positive reinforcement um, goes a long way in helping encourage the behaviors you want to see. Um, and so that's sort of what you're saying is the pro-social encouragement reinforcements from the coaches uh, verbally is more long lasting and more effective than any other training technique they could try, any other coaching technique they could try. Absolutely. Now, I mean, obviously there are, there are exceptions that, you know, when you look at high school football, some of the most powerhouse programs, um, their coaches probably don't do that. They, you know, you have a lot of yelling, you have a lot of discipline, which some of that's understandable. Some, I could, I could see why some people would understand that because to draw, to get an adolescent's attention or even a, uh, a middle school kid at the age of 11, which is technically still childhood developmental stage, you're going to have to do a little bit of negative reinforcement. You're going to have to, to yell, but in the long run, it's not going to be helpful because yelling can't be the answer all the time you're gonna have to be patient and those exceptions yeah some of those programs do are end up being the winningest programs but imagine if this winningest program would apply that proposed experiment guarantee their winning percent would increase and players morale would be good and they would know that they are just they're more than they're appreciated not just as an athlete but as a human being and do you think that could help with the stress coping from the players of losing? Um, you know, if there's more of this, like, I have a personal connection with you as the coach, with the player, and I value you as a human being and not just, you know, a number on the team to win, that losing is maybe not as detrimental um, to their self-esteem as it would be otherwise. Like them seeing that, they're so much more than their wins. Like winning is just a piece of it, but they're, you know, especially that developmental stage where like you're developing your self-worth and you're learning, like, this is what I bring to the table as human being. So helping them see that they're them, them as like a well-rounded person with many, many different things to bring to the table rather than just if you are a good athlete or not, or if you can win or not. I'm sure if you go on a website like Pub, PubMed, which uh, has a dozen of public health interventions, I'm sure there's already intervention when you type in stress and coping theory mm -hmm. and team sports that they're absolutely, if they're surrounded by the right people, they will be motivated to be better people that there's sports is much more than just wins or loses. If you lose, that's okay. You'll rebound, pick yourself back up. You know, of course, a lot of coaches always stress at a young age that winning isn't everything. As long as you did your best, that's okay. Obviously, as you get older, coaches will start bending those rules. It'll be more about the wins because you're now competing at a much higher level. It's really now up to the coaches to keep that, that attitude. And that's why you had the post-duration WhatsApp group, checking in and make sure that they're, they're doing that. I can't, I can't really tell if professional sports teams do that or even if college teams do that, but that would be one way to help out athletes to cope with the stress and with lower unhealthy behaviors like 
anxiety, stress, even, even cardiovascular disease or, or lower the chances of obesity because an athlete may not be able to handle the stress of, of a sport anymore. Um, in addition, it also falls when you look at a young age, and this is, was part of my three-minute thesis on why contact football should be continued at a young age, it falls on the parents. You know, you, there, you, see, you see certain movies where like it's a small rural town, football, football is life, but the parent doesn't, like the one parent, the dad who used to be a big, used to be like a mediocre football star, but wants their, their son uh, to be the best football star, probably go to like a big giant program. You see a knock, they don't care if they get into Harvard or Brown. They want to see them go like to University of Texas or Oklahoma State. They want to, it's all about football because in some small towns where football is life, football is truly life. So it, it depends on the parent, not it depends on the parent not putting that stress on the child because, you know, football is a major part of, the, of that community. And that deals with the, another example of eco-developmental eco theory of using a certain life cycle, like uh, a certain life phase, life portion, like um, built environment slash community level factors that acts as a mediator to um, for a kid that plays football that relates to a health outcome of stress and depression. Right. And with, you know, along with what you're saying, like sometimes high school sports, sometimes the stakes are higher because maybe you're trying to get a scholarship, you know, and that's the only way you'll be able to afford college. And that's the only way you'll be able to get out of wherever you're at. Um, and so, you know, that would be a lot of pressure, even though you're not competing for money in your hand, you're, you're competing for really the chance to go to college that you may not be able to do otherwise. Um, so that, that pressure and pressure from families, I could see that being like, you've got to get this scholarship because we're not going to be able to put you through college. So wanting better for their kids as well, but add, adding a lot of pressure on children for that. Absolutely, and that was one of the uh, one of the significant points that I did talk about in my thesis on the health and wellness benefits of youth playing full contact mm -hmm. tackle football. I mean, over two point five million kids play football, play youth football in America, primarily boys between the ages of five to thirteen. Um, you know, because this, this sport creates academic opportunities post high school. In addition, the sport also prepares you for life af after the game because you learn so many physical and mental health factors in the sport of playing football. I mean, um, you have behavior, you have, you know, behavior and cognitive benefits include, uh, one study showed that social and cognitive benefits that encourage parents to let their kids play football. Because one of the biggest things when we talk about football is the safety of the sport. It's a very ruthless sport. You have the whole concussion stuff going on. Um, I have a little tiny bit of reservations of if I ever have a kid to let them play football. But this, like I said, the sport really does create benefits. And that was one of my argument points of why football should be paid. So one of the studies show that the benefits of the sport encourage the parents to let their kids play football. Um, some of these benefits described by the parents incorporated both mental and emotional rewards of participation, including persistence, discipline, respect for authority, self-esteem, and increased attention paid to their, paid to their grades. Um, Parents also noted social benefits of football because, of course, to play in a in a in a in an amateur level, both middle elementary, middle school, high school, and college, you need to have a certain GPA to continue playing for football. So playing the sport it makes the kid like I have to get this GPA not only to stay on the team, but I need a certain GPA to get into college. So kids, you know, some kids that don't play these team sports as well as based on individual, interpersonal and community factors, 
they not may not be motivated to do well in school. They may just have, they may not care and they do poor grades. Being part of a team sport because of this, this recommendation, because of this guideline, it makes the kid want to get a good grade. Um, and in, in the end, the kid, some kids end up loving school and some kids, only 1% of NCAA athletes end up being professional. So they took advantage of that scholarship that they worked, they, they got because of the good grades in high school. And they get a full four years of education after their college sport. And now they get to apply it and create opportunity for their future generations. In addition, you know, um, the, another behavioral cognitive benefit of football, it, like I said, it boosts confidence and persistence. So that's just one, another example of the benefits of playing football. And obviously, like I said, you know, a lot of, a lot of, uh, a lot of hits to the head. Um, so despite those potential long cognitive risk of hits to the head, there are, research has shown there are cognitive gains of discipline, focus, and being coachable that are presented, as well as increased communities, uh, communication skills, which are so important in the childhood developmental stage and need to be continued on in the adolescent developmental stage. And that goes back with the whole proposed intervention of like the high school coaches should start acting a little bit like these young optimist league coaches that instill patience and positive reinforcement and individual time and patience that should be continued in the high school level because that increases the communication skill and the communication understanding of the student athletes um and then of course like i said uh taking in constructive, constructive criticism at a young age, as well as getting talked to as adult, because this coach will respect you as an adult if you're, if you're willing to be patient, if you're willing to listen. So this boosts the athlete's confidence that, hey, this coach is treating me like my kid. He's treating me like a respectable player. So I respect that. And it just builds more of the, of the confidence. It's, it's more of a motivational interviewing benefit. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and you know, one of the biggest things I found about team sports, especially football, is the camaraderie. I apologize if I mispronounced that word. You know, in sport teams, you have such, especially in big urban cities like a Chicago or like a Miami or like uh, New York, Los Angeles, you have a melting pot of different backgrounds working together, and in a way. It, it's finding racism, it's being part of a team, like you're interacting with people of different uh, races, of different income levels, a giant melting pot. So it's, in a way, you're just creating resilience and you're, create, you're creating just positive feelings because th- these are your brothers or in terms of women's sport, these are your sisters or co-ed, these, these are your brothers and sisters. Mm-hmm. So like, in terms of tackle football, it should absolutely be continued for kids. I think there's so many ben- uh, mental benefits for youth playing football. But, you know, there are changes, suggested changes in order to youth to continue playing full contact football, such as to, um, in terms of concussions, the evaluation standard ration of helmets help reduce the rates of fatalities and catastrophic head injuries. But standards did not address the problem of traumatic brain injury. So one way to add that is shells on top of the, of the helmets, an extra layer of protection, otherwise known as guardian caps. In addition, uh, another way to go back to it, the pads make you feel like, oh, I'm so protected. Nothing's going to injure me. But that's, that gives the players more of a reason to hit you harder. When you go back to the 19. 19- 20s and 30s, obviously a lot of concussion research wasn't done then, but it was a different style of football because there were less pads. It was more of a rugby style tackling, like dragging down tackling. Mm-hmm. So that's another method to uh, increase uh, playing in continuation of full contact football youth is adding less protection in terms of um, shoulder pads and all that stuff really making the players be careful as they're tracking. So instead of using shoulder to shoulder or going for like the head kill, it's a drag down tackling, very careful tackling. Um, 
And then of course, for coaches, a lot more certification is needed for the coaches. And this goes back to the psychological intervention, the coaches being more patient, more willing to motivate their players in the right pro-social behaviors, as well as more certification, like getting a USA football heads up, a legitimate CPR first aid certification, not just having some parent that used to play high school football back in the day come in as like a side coach, having an actual paid instructor hired by the school, this would increase the chances of football being played for a long future. Because a world without tackle football, I, I really hope I don't see that. I understand why people are against it, but mm-hmm. just there's so many beautiful benefits of that sports. And it just, it's, it's, a, cult, it's a culture in itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, you know, I can relate to that on, uh, it, you know, a certain level, not with sports. I mean, I did sports um, in high school, but I didn't enjoy them, but I was uh, forced to continue <laughs> by my parents so that I would get, you know, all the things you learn, like you don't quit and you commit to the team and all that stuff. So, you know, we, we had to finish uh, mixed martial arts and and everything, even though we didn't want to, but not that I'm holding that against them. No. <laughs> um, but you know, there was with, for me, it was theater. And so there was that camaraderie that being a team, uh, this eclectic sort of melting pot that comes with like being involved in theater, um, experiencing new things, learning a lot of pro-social communication skills and, and uh, conflict resolution skills and, and all that stuff. And so I, I understand that like it's a culture in and of itself and it's a support system and a community um, for kids. It may not, may not have that otherwise. Like, you know, a lot of kids don't feel like they fit in anywhere until they join a club or a group or a sport. And now it's like built-in friends. Um, of, you know, that you're going to be with all the time, you've got to rehearse or you've got to practice or you're going to competitions and, and you're going to stay at each other's house and you're going to talk about what's going on, you know, with the sport and you're going to see each other every day after school. And so the, the socialization that comes with that, um, I can totally see that being extremely beneficial for adolescents. And how they, I mean, your point about um, the camaraderie and being on the team with people of different backgrounds where they may not have otherwise been exposed to people of, of those backgrounds. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a benefit. I don't, I mean, I hadn't really thought of mm-hmm. before. Um, yeah. yeah, I can, you know, I can actually give you a, you know, my, my experience of playing college football. I went to, a a small school, basically a, a Methodist-based college in North Carolina. And a lot of my teammates were from like, uh, some of them were from big cities like Charlotte or, or Charleston, a couple of them actually from Miami, Florida as well. But a lot of these players were from uh, towns that if you own, I've never heard of them. And communities of like maybe 5,000 or 10,000 or less. So, you know, I myself, as a Jewish Hispanic American, I was part of a minority of my football team. And, you know, eventually we got to a comfort level on their end where they can, you know, start cracking Jewish jokes at me. You know, at first they bothered me. And, you know, like people can say it's locker room talk, you know, like, and if I didn't protest these jokes, then I wouldn't be... Um, accepted by them I would be deemed I would be deemed weak and obviously I was a very young age so I didn't know better I went along with the jokes you know it takes a lot to really upset me I mean some jokes were like oh my gosh you guys are are terrible geez Louise but um you know they're they're I don't want to get into specific jokes but they were very incredibly messed up jokes but because I was part of a culture, I, I had to respect that. However, 
you know, I taught them some stuff about my culture because they've never been exposed to that culture. In addition, they taught me some stuff too, because I wasn't really exposed to certain cultures myself, especially like a cult, a true Southeast United States culture, because Miami is really not part of the South. I would say it's a metropolitan part of the South. It's not the true deep South. But where I knew that these players truly cared about me was uh, there was an incident where somebody uh, committed an anti-Semitic crime on my car. And the facial expression of some of the players who I agreed to give a ride back to campus, they, they were shocked because I think for them, they've never, they never truly understood what anti-Semitism was. When, and they were mad. They, they literally went all over to campus, literally like, I'm not promoting violence, but they were literally like- They were looking for those people to beat them up. They were, they, yeah. <laughs> yeah, they were really defending me. Right. Um, and that's really where I truly saw that because we've spent so much time together, like I am their brother, like I, mm-hmm. they've accepted me. And their jokes, yes, they, they were jokes and you couldn't make it as locker room talk which is still, I feel like when you get at an older stage, it's not acceptable, but at that stage, you can deem it success, uh, acceptable because you're still young, you're still mentally maturing. Um, but it was there that I truly knew that they were anti-Semitic because they were anti-Semitic, they would laugh at, they would laugh at what happened in my car, but they literally stood up for me. And that's really when I knew that they were my brothers. Um, so just, when you spend so much time, similar to like a, a club organization, when you spend so much time together in a built organization, you build those social skills and you, you build that, that bonding. That's so interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, well, yeah, first I'm sorry to hear that that happened. Yeah, that's, car. that's awful. Horrible. Um, but that's so interesting that like, they so they had never really known Jewish people before and they didn't know what anti-Semitism was and then to be exposed to like uh you know a, a crime like that um and then probably you know you going through life you know me as well you know we we met kind of through the Jew- Louisville Jewish community um going through life like knowing that anti-semitism was a thing and then seeing this group of people have your back probably yeah like I can see how that was really meaningful for you so yeah it was a a very it was very touching you know I was I was I was shaking at first it's very touching unfortunately I would say this it was not the only racial hate crime that happened to an athlete in sport. It was just the only one that happened in in football. And the response that the school did was they actually brought members of of like the player, actual players remember the Titans, that movie. They brought it in, they watched a movie, the players talked about, you know, um, racism, how the end did come together. And it was very profound. You know, the funny thing for me, though, is as I was watching, as I was watching that movie with my teammates, I was like, wait a minute, there's no Jewish people remember the Titans. How does this help my situation? (laughs) Uh, So, you know, there was a, I could have, there was a football movie that kind of relates to anti-Semitism, but this, what the school did was right. It just, I always look back and I was like, school should have just done something better because this doesn't help my situation. (laughs) Right, right. (laughs) Yeah. So as we're, um, you know, we've kind of already gotten into the social justice piece of this. Um, were there any other social justice points that that you wanted to make? Well, yes, I, you know, I was talking about pro pro athletes, especially combat athletes. Mm-hmm. I mentioned, you know, the, the Paul brothers, um, Conor McGregor, you know, the showboating. Uh, no, no sportsmanship, not, you know, only a few MMA athletes use their sport as a platform to create positive change. Um, it just, it's a shame that there's not enough pro athletes 
especially in combat sports, because they want to sell the fight, that they don't do enough. I mean, the perfect example of an athlete that true, and I'm trying not to be biased here because of my time working for them, but Muhammad Ali was an excellent example of an athlete that was able to showboat a little bit, but also be such a positive message for these the generation that followed him after he truly used his sport to create positive positive change to fight for social justice to fight against racism the stand that he took against the vietnam war saying why should i go fight a war thousand miles away and help a people uh belittle or or conquer another uh, another poc community when that's still happening in my community you don't see athletes today. You don't really see a lot of pro sport athletes, especially in combat sports, use that, that platform. That's why when you always hear the com comparison, like, oh, you know, uh, uh, this heavyweight guy is the next Muhammad Ali or so-and-so is the next Muhammad Ali. Like, I really don't, unless you have an athlete that is as great as that professional athlete training-wise as Muhammad Ali, as well as the social justice component. Until there's an athlete that can combine that both, there will be nobody that is as good as Ali. And you need to see that more in combat sports because I, I am passionate about mixed martial arts. You know, I always wanted to get into pro MMA. I just, you know, I wasn't built for it. I just wish there were more positive influences in that sport because of course the media and parents criticize it. Um, you know, I, I, I know, understand we're a little bit short of time, but I did briefly do a thesis on why MMA sports are so beneficial for kids. And an example of that is actually how Muhammad Ali got his start, which is, and it's very important social justice, especially in the inner city, is the police athletic league program, a PAL program. Uh, you see that in, in major cities all arise. This is a a program where police officers, they go into these boxing or MMA gyms and after school they give, they work with the kids improving their, their boxing or their mixed martial arts. So it's community resilience. It's like building community partnerships between the officers and the kids. In addition, it gives the kids a safe space to be after school. So they're not getting in trouble or they're in a structured setting. The most important thing is it just shows that not every police officer um, is, is bad. I know that's a big, big topic, but there are officers that truly want to help the community. And, um, you know, it would be cool to see these pro athletes come in and do programs like that. And I'm sure there are, but I just, you don't really hear a lot about them. A, a great example of an athlete that does a lot for, um, for community give back would be Dustin Poirier, who's based out here in South Florida. You know, he runs a, a nonprofit. He gives back to the community. After a loss, he gave half of his winning purse to the guy that he lost to, to his nonprofit. And just, you need, you need more fighters like that. So that's one sport and social justice point I wanted to bring out. And I know that you guys had a, a question about another very big current event topic. The... So yes, um, <laughs> my, my bad. So yeah, um, I know, you know, in current events, we're seeing a lot of uh, banning of trans athletes, right? Oh, now. yes, and yes, yes. Sorry, I, did, I thought that's what you meant, but I wasn't. Oh, I thought, well, I thought that you guys were going to lead in and all that stuff. So, oh, sorry. Um, but, but that's okay. Um, so, you know, I, I, I would, as a public health, as a public health, member of the community as well as a person that is so passionate about sports i i can't really ignore a subject about that mm -hmm. obviously you have a lot of criticism and controversy with the subject but when it comes to the amateur level it just it comes down to the point that these kids just want to play they just want to have fun and of course as we talked about playing a sport being involved in a team sport it creates so many healthy outcomes like um, reduced risk of obesity, reduced risk of, of mental health issues. And because of laws that like a governor, like the governor down here in Florida is passing or 
Um, a lot of state Congress, even though the governor is banning a law, but the state Congress is, is vetoing it. For example, you know, Governor Bashir of Kentucky, he vetoed the ban on transgender athletes in team sports, but odds are because Kentucky's primarily red state, that Congress is going to probably veto the veto. So because of that, these kids don't have any access to sports and they're so passionate about sports. And it's just, it's just a shame that they already face enough stigma. This goes back to another example of the equal developmental theory where they deal with backlash from their family. They deal with backlash from certain communities that they don't get access. As for the fair play stuff, again, this is, this is amateur sports. These kids aren't winning any money. You know, let, let the kids play. I, I can understand where some people are coming from, but push comes to shove. These are just kids. They just want to play. I mean, what are you going to do? You're going to, you know, take that athlete from Penn. You said that athlete shouldn't be competing with the women swimmers. You're going to make, you're going to make her swim with the, her assigned, her original assigned birth, birth gender, which was males. Maybe she doesn't want to dress as a male swimmer. Maybe she's feel comfortable dressing as a woman swimmer. And these people are going to say like, oh, take that off. You're not allowed to do that. You know, the athlete's going to say, the athlete's like, well, I want, I identify as a girl and I want to swim the girls, but you wouldn't let me. So I'm swimming the boys and wearing this stuff. I mean, what else do you want me to do? It's, it's a lose-lose. And, you know, um, just because of like the limited access these athletes have, it just creates so, like I said, many health risks, like, especially in the LGBTQ community, like they, they end up being at risk for obesity or depression. Um, there's just, you know, there's just so many health outcomes just, and I'm just surprised that, you know, you look at religious upbringing, you look at the culture. Um, and right now I'm working, I'm working on a proposed intervention on, doesn't relate to sports, but it's HIV, uh, improving HIV prevention treatment, prevention methods in the Southeast United States for adolescents uh, of, of all communities, uh, LGBTQ or not. And because they deal with cultural stress of their upbringings, it, limited, it limits their, their access. It makes them fear seeking help, which will then end up on those youth being exposed to HIV and AIDS. So same thing applies for this. Uh, with adding men mental mental health issues. Uh, but yeah, I'd love to hear what you guys think about this current issue as well. Yeah, I mean, you know, we've been talking about all of these benefits from sports and then to say that um, either trans people can't participate or they have to participate with the gender they were assigned at birth. It's like, they're missing out on all of these benefits and it's putting them at, at risk. Like, you know, a trans woman being on the boys team, a trans girl being on the boys team, it's putting, it's putting her at risk, you know? And I think that people aren't thinking about like the safety and well-being of these trans, these trans people. Right, right. And, and you're absolutely right. Like when it comes, you know, amateur level, like just let kids play. Like, yeah. why, why are we, why are we policing that so much um, when there's so many benefits that we know about kids being involved in extracurricular activities, clubs, sports, um, and they just want to they just want to play with their friends, like just to exclude them from another area of interest, from another another part of their life um, yeah. that they may they'll feel othered by. Yeah, I mean, so one reason is uh, we as a society fear change. We don't like difference. We like the status quo. Mm -hmm. I mean, take a look. These sports. Take a look at pre pre nineteen forties baseball where all the MLB players were white. Then comes this guy, Jackie Robinson comes in because he's given the opportunity and he changes the game. So of course now society, which, and there's, of course, we live in a society that believes in structural racism. 
systematic racism is an absolutely 100% a thing. They see this as, oh, great, another group of people that are going to be more dominant than, than us because we've been the top of the food chain. Mm -hmm. Kind of goes a little bit related to the alpha, the alpha mindset of, of the dominating heterosexual uh, group. Heteronormative, but, yeah. Heteronormative. I thank you very much. Yeah. <laughs> Again, I'm still a student. So I'm still learning some stuff. Very good. <laughs> but yeah, it just it it goes with with fear of change and and taking a while to get used to it. And we as a society, it's just and we're still getting used to uh, we're still getting used to uh, equal rights for women. We're still getting equal rights to 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 black to black people to to Hispanic and Latin Latina Latinx people. Um, in the end, though, it's just like sports is so powerful. It should just bring people together. Mm -hmm. It's not an advantage, you know. Like just cut all that malarkey out. Mm -hmm. Just let people play because sports just is so powerful. It just brings people together. Obviously, like. Um, one of my greatest, one of my greatest accomplishments at the Ali Center was, well, to me, it was successful. Uh, but when we had an exhibit that dealt with Middle Eastern culture and the World Cup was on, I had a, a family World Cup viewing party and I handed out literature of why soccer is so important and vital in the Middle Eastern community. Um, because push comes to shove, uh, football, non-football Americano, uh, soccer, as you call it, it's just that power of the sport. It just brings people together, especially the World Cup, you know, because you cheer on you cheer on your country. You have a national pride, um, even though you may have political differences and stuff like that. It doesn't matter. Like this is when you come together and you cheer on your team, no matter your differences, no matter your political beliefs, your SES status, your race, your gender. You cheer on your team. That's the power of for a fan as a sport. Mm-hmm. So it's overall just sports, you're playing it or watching it brings people together. And that's truly why I'm passionate about using sports as a platform to promote physical and mental well-being, mm -hmm. especially in adolescence, which is an age group that I'm very passionate about. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's amazing. I, I, I love that. I love how passionate you are. And I love that you know, you bring in all of these really important ideas and insights into, into the work and the learning that you do. So, yeah, I'll hopefully, uh, you know, my five-year plan is to run a not, you know, start a nonprofit organization that deals with uh, giving equal access of, of sports or equal access of, of physical activity to uh, promote physical well-being. Like why should a, imagine if a kid from a lower SES neighborhood who has no resources or access to like an actual gym, imagine if I give that kid the resources and tools to be, fit, to be physically fit just as a kid in an upper SES neighborhood. Mm -hmm. That's the type of nonprofit I want. I want access for all kids, all adolescents to be physically fit whether if that's through weightlifting or a team sport improvement. So that's, you know, God willing, I have a nonprofit idea, but just like sports is, if sports ever goes away in this world, it's, it's not, I mean, to me, this may be deep, but it's a world not worth living. Uh, but yeah. yeah. No, it, that's amazing. I love um, that. I love that five-year plan you have. Yeah. And thank you so much for, for taking time. I know you're studying a lot right now. So taking time out of your day, uh, sharing your passion with us, because it really is something you're passionate about and um, the knowledge that you have, that you've picked up from, you know, your studying um, and teaching us more about this. Some things that I had not considered about sports, not mm -hmm. being a sports person myself, I'd not considered the full impact that organized sports have um, for people, especially in uh, with all the positives. So that was really, you know, interesting to be like, okay, yeah, that's it is important. It's not just a game. There, there's there's a deeper part to it. 
than seems yeah. on the surface. Same. Um, I'm not much of a sports person either. So today was um, definitely a learn you know, a conversation for of learning for for me as well. Um, that there's so much more involved than it might it might seem like there's all of these benefits and there's all of these like mental health social emotional and big picture societal benefits um that everyone should have access to so i think this um you know this path you're on is amazing so thanks so much appreciate it no, thank you. The pleasure is all mine. And, you know, uh, please keep doing this podcast. You know, you're, you're reaching out to people. Um, you know, men, mental health is so, is so important in public and mm-hmm. public health and medical and overall health. It's just such a big vital thing. So keep doing this podcast. It's, it's awesome, guys. Thank hey. you so much. Well, that's our show. If you enjoyed this episode, please follow us on wherever you get your podcasts. And we'd also appreciate a rating and review. And don't forget to follow the show's, the show's Instagram for updates on new episodes at Just Mental Health Podcast. And that is with a period between each of those words. This is Steph. And M. And I'm Elliot. Signing off. Thanks for listening.